Welcome back to the Other States of America History Podcast. In our last episode, we were introduced to a young man named Samuel D. Champlain, who by the age of 32 had a net worth that would have taken the average Frenchman at the time 500 years of constant saving of every penny they made to obtain. He had been a soldier, a spy, a sailor, a map maker, personal friend of the King of France, and now here he was in the St. Lawrence, getting to know the natives, mapping out the waterways. But in the New World, he was not his own man. He worked for the people who held the monopolies over the trade in the St. Lawrence, which changed hands seemingly every year to 18 months. Currently, all the privileges were held by a man by the name of Demont, who had a lot of experience along the St. Lawrence and in the fur trade, and was part of the failed Tadoussac colony that ended in disaster, where nearly everyone died. And so Demont wanted to stay away from the St. Lawrence, even though that's where the best furs were, and that's where all the traders would be going that he would have to license out. He wanted a base of operations further south, outside of the St. Lawrence. Samuel D. Champlain, an advisor for him and the king, disagreed, but it really wasn't up to him. And so this next colony in our story of New France would actually be in the lower half of what the French considered their territory, in an area that they vaguely called Acadia, which would cover parts of southern Canada, all the way down to probably Philadelphia, and westward with no limit. So a huge swath of the United States today. In France, early preparations were made in the late winter of 1603 into the spring of 1604. Everyone involved in this first expedition and settlement were men. Men or young boys. There were no women on board. The intention here was to create a colony, not grow a colony. And when they set sail in April of 1604, we had a couple characters on board. We, of course, we had Samuel D. Champlain who we learned about extensively in our previous episode. You should listen to that. We have the burly, big, jolly pirate of a man, Grave Dupont, who had been hobnobbing around the St. Lawrence for decades now, tons of experience, had a huge, booming voice that would be used to call ships out over the waves. I likened him to a pirate in the last episode, but now I see him as like a, a jolly sea Santa, probably in his 40s at this point, but he would have looked weathered and old from all the adventures he'd been on. Of course, the owner and operator of the entire operation was present, the previously mentioned Pierre Demont, who held title to Acadia and New France separately and together. Also on board was an important investor in this company by the name of Poutrincourt. I believe I'm saying that correctly. Baron Poutrincourt, who would become very important to our story in future episodes. Various other people were on board of different stations in life, including one African man, who had some knowledge of the native languages off the coast of what would be today uh, northern New England, Maine. It's unknown when exactly this man received exposure to New England Algonquian languages. But we know today that there was this whole transatlantic world that different groups of people were caught up in. Between the coast of Africa, between Iberia, between the Caribbean, South America, and parts of North America, where certain people were just caught in a cycle. And they would end up in Lisbon, and then they would end up in the coast of Africa, and they'd end up in the Caribbean. And they'd be used around because the more they went places, the more skills they built, and the more language abilities they received. And this seems to be one of those people who was kind of lost to history, but was incredibly knowledgeable and incredibly useful. On board, we also had some Swiss mercenaries to help keep order for the ruling class, of course. And then we had two Catholic priests and one Protestant minister. Now, here's an important distinction. Again, France just went through nine civil wars over religion, but the everything was starting to cool, and uh, the French people were just beginning to realize that 
two similar religions could exist in the same spot, same place, at the same time. But one of these Catholic priests really hated the Protestant minister, and vice versa. And before they even got off the boat, they were feuding with one another, often settling their disagreements with physical fights, neither one being a bastion of godliness. On the way over, they actually almost crashed themselves uh, on the shoals outside of Sable Island, which we talked about in a previous episode, notorious for its fogs and uh, low-lying sand just under the water's surface, perfect for a shipwreck. But they survived. They didn't crash. And they actually made pretty quick time. From April to right to the beginning of May, they reached the shores of Acadia, which again at this time would be the shoreline of New England all the way up to the maritime provinces of Canada today. They had a decent idea of the coastline already from previous expeditions. And the site that de Mont settled on was Saint-Croix Island. And I believe I'm saying that in the French correctly. Uh, an American or Englishman might look at the word and say, oh, Saint-Croix, Saint-Croix Island, which is actually inside of the modern borders of Maine. So there you go. Champlain, the father of New France, the first colony he participates in right here in the United States today. That's why this is an other states of America subject. That's what I've been telling you people. Now, the island is inside of the Saint-Croix River, and it's only five acres large. So you would think, not a great site to start a colony, right? Not a great site to, to start any sort of growth whatsoever. But they settled earlier in the year, where it was nice and warm. A nice, warm, Maine June. The French did not realize uh, how harsh the winters would get. They knew how harsh the winters were way up in the St. Lawrence. But here they figured it'd be a little more mild. Uh, they also started planting crops. They didn't realize until it was too late that the soil wasn't that great or that deep. They sought to make habitations, and they very quickly stripped the entire island of trees. And so, in hindsight, which we have the benefit of, already does not look like this colony is off to a good start. The one benefit that Saint-Croix Island had, uh, at least to Champlain's eye, as he records it, was that it looked easy to fortify. A lot of these early colonies uh, start off on islands. I believe Cartier built on an island, and uh, French Florida, one of those forts they built was on an island. Jamestown was a peninsula that is more or less an island itself. Now, why do all these Europeans build on these little specks of land? Sable Island, which we talked about before, well, it was for defense. The Europeans, to their own admission, knew very little about the mainland of North America. If they could be close to it so that they could trade with the natives and observe what's going on, but still have some protection from the mainland, that's what they preferred at this point, because they do not have numerical superiority. Not at all. They don't have superior knowledge of the land. They, they seemingly know nothing. They're at the mercy of the natives. So if they can just be close but isolate themselves slightly, that's what they would prefer in the 16th and right into the 17th century. And so they chose this island. Champlain notes that uh, they had 30-foot granite cliffs on three of its four sides. So it was an island that was already uh, fairly inaccessible. And if he could get the men together to fortify that one side, it would be a safe place for everyone to hold up in case the natives get a little rowdy. But they did construct a few habitations on the mainland as well. Now, this sounds like small potatoes, but I'm going to turn to the uh, esteemed historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, who says, Except for the possible survivors of Riley's Virginia colony, Roanoke, not one Englishman or European was then active north of Florida. He is referring to St. Augustine, which was founded in our Fr French Florida episodes. So from St. Augustine on up, 
there was no permanent European settlements in the year 1604. The only exception he's giving is any Roanoke survivors who have integrated themselves with the tribes along the coast of North Carolina. For the owner-operator of this entire endeavor, Demont, everything looked good, at least at first. And he managed to capture a fur trader who was sailing up and down the coast, trading against Demont's monopoly. And so it seemed like this was a pretty good site to monitor the trade going in and out of the St. Lawrence and the coast of Acadia. From September 2nd of 1604 to October 3rd, Champlain was tasked to take a group of 12 other guys and survey the nearby coastline. Champlain would be sent out several times between 1604 and 1607 in order to do this. And over this time, he would actually map in accurate detail all the way down to the southern point of Cape Cod. Historians note that these maps were actually more accurate than the maps of John Smith of Jamestown fame several years after this. And on Champlain's maps, what we now know as New England was part of New France. So here we are again, a huge chunk of the United States today. Well, a seminal portion of it, obviously wrapped up with our tales about the pilgrims in 1620. Here we are years before that. And the area is, of course, inhabited by natives, being settled by the French, and being claimed as a portion of New France. Champlain was also tasked with finding the ancient and wonderful kingdom of Norumbega, this mythical kingdom that the natives uh, convinced the French existed somewhere uh, in the inland of Maine, or maybe perhaps in what is now upstate New York. Champlain, to his credit, unlike many of his forefathers in this area, uh, rightly concluded that Norumbega does not exist, that it was a myth. Which, good going for Champlain. Uh, other explorers in the past, like Cartier, they wasted tons of resources, human lives, and years of their own lives searching for mythical kingdoms that didn't exist. Uh, preparing to make contact with these places that were simply fantasies inside of the minds of Frenchmen and tall tales told by Native Americans. And so Champlain, once again, has sidestepped one of the errors made by his predecessors. Despite the early warning signs, everyone felt that St. Croix was going all right. Things weren't falling apart. But then the winter set in. The winter in northern Maine. The French already knew from their experiences in the St. Lawrence that latitude and weather didn't exactly correlate between Europe and North America. The St. Lawrence is at some of the same latitudes as France, but the weather is far different. And where they were in Maine would actually put them, in terms of latitude, south of Paris. And yet it was so much colder there, they really couldn't believe the difference. And that's when things became very problematic. First of all, the river started to ice over. The dangerous flows of ice started to run down it. And where they were in the river itself was still too salty in order to drink. And so they had to go to the mainland to find a fresh source of water. Also, like I said, they stripped the island of trees. Winter's coming on, you're going to need firewood. So they'd have to make it across this ice flow infested river in order to get firewood to then bring back to St. Croix. In total, uh, Champlain records that 79 people stayed over winter at the settlement. But as the days grew shorter and the winter got colder, the bodies began to pile up. People began dying left and right. Of the 79 who started at the beginning of the winter, 35 of them died before spring. And in spring, 20 of the survivors were deathly ill, on the verge of the abyss themselves, but managed to pull through. Champlain described the dead and the dying and their symptoms 
and modern historians believe that they were suffering from scurvy, which of course is a lack of vitamin C. Nobody knew that back then. And uh, the similar problem happened with Jacques Cartier's people during his first attempt to settle. Of course, the Native Americans had a cure for it. But Champlain didn't know about that cure. And as far as he knew, scurvy was caused by eating too much salt. Because they were eating so much salted food, he figured, well, there's the cause. Everyone's eating salted food. And then, of course, the effect would be scurvy and death. Not a bad guess for the time. They had no, no knowledge of the scientific meaning of a vitamin. They, they didn't know what vitamin C was. So he saw a cause, he saw an effect, and he put it together. That's what humans do. But instead of realizing it was an absence of a certain type of food, he thought it was an overabundance of the food that they did have. But out of those 79 people, you're talking about 55 of them dead or dying by springtime. It must have been just absolutely miserable. Just a bunch of guys, by the way. There's no women around or anything. Tempers most assuredly flared, especially between the Catholic priest and the Protestant minister that we brought up. Again, they would physically fight one another uh, when arguments wouldn't be resolved by any outside party. And both of them actually found themselves among the dead. In a bit of gallows humor, Champlain records that in the spring, they buried the body of the priest and the minister together in one communal grave to see if they would lie peacefully together. Those are his translated words. So all in all, by the spring, it was clear that this site was not working, that Frenchmen could not thrive here. They had to find somewhere else to set up a base of operations because you can't, you can't have two-thirds of your people dead or dying every year. The colony will never get off the ground and you'll never be able to enforce a monopoly in the St. Lawrence from that location. And so it was concluded in the spring that St. Croix would be completely disassembled and all of the building materials they could scavenge would be used to make a new settlement. The site they chose would be known as Port Royal, or Port, Port Royal for you Anglophones out there, in modern-day Nova Scotia. The entire colony would be housed in one large two-story building that had a central courtyard in the middle. Like row housing or an Iroquois longhouse, it had separate sections to afford some privacy. But it was all contained into itself to provide extra security. Dumont himself would not be staying at the colony. Poutrin Court would be going back home. A lot of the important people. And so Grave du Pont, or Pont Grave, the old surly sea Santa that I talked about earlier, would be made the leader, at least for this year, in the first year of Port Royal. The survivors of St. Croix would be tasked with completing what they would call the habitation, the structure I just described. But only three of them volunteered to stay at Port Royal. The rest were headed home. They were done with the New World. The colony, essentially, would have to be completely restocked with Frenchmen. And that's when a character we've seen before in our first episode of this series made his grand appearance. The great member two of the Mi'kmaq, who came with his people in friendship to Port Royal and helped the French build their habitation. Several first-hand accounts uh, record impressions of member two. First of all, he claimed to be 100 years old and yet had no gray hair. He had a huge beard, which natives of the Mi'kmaq typically didn't have, at least at that time. He was an unusually large man, and unlike other chiefs, he had only one wife. He claims to have met Jacques Cartier in 1534 and claimed to be the grand chief of all the Mi'kmaq for the last 50 years or so. Now, I like this guy because he paints a very different picture than the one we typically see in history books or Disney movies where the Native American chiefs are 
good-hearted and but generally ignorant of what the Europeans were up to. The historian Alan Greer notes that by the time uh, Port Royal is being built, the Megamac have maybe had a century of contact with European traders. And the historian Bruce Trigger notes that while the natives may initially have seen European technology and the materials as magical, and maybe the people themselves as magical, uh, after some observation, they would realize how clueless most Europeans were about their surroundings, and realize they were just people just like themselves. And Memberto was no stranger to Europeans. In fact, he had his own sailing ship. He had a small ship that he would sail. And what he would do is he would take his furs and sail out to meet the Europeans before they ever had a chance to hit the coast and trade with them then and there, offering the convenience for a premium price. So Member 2 was already participating in the European trade and dictating his own terms. And in the modern era, the Megamac people use Member 2 as a founding father of sorts. And so in their history, he is the grand chief of the entire people. But historians disagree with that assessment. So we can leave that on the table. That's fine. I'm just going to show you the other side of the story that might be true. While he was a remarkable man, historians generally agree that he wasn't 100 years old when Champlain met him. And by the numbers in his war parties, uh, many historians assume that he was a chief, but he was a local chief. And that maybe the Megamac didn't have a grand chief yet. Or if they did, he certainly wasn't that person. The historian Samuel Elliott Morrison calls him a local sagamore. So a local sachem would be another term for that. A local chief. And maybe some of his stories were stretched a bit. Maybe his age was exaggerated. Maybe his exploits multiplied by a factor or two. Champlain, being one of the first Frenchmen to write about him, maybe the first Frenchman to write about him, uh, records that Membertot was the most evil and treacherous among all of those of his nation. It would be Frenchmen who would come a year or two later, and over the following decade, who seemed to have magnified the role of Member 2 among his people. Then again, if we want to side with the modern Mi'kmaq and their history, Member 2 might have been the head chief of the entire nation, and the French were just gaining a greater and greater picture of what was going on. So always keep in mind, Member 2 might be telling tall tales, or he might be a near-mythical being. It's, it's still, a, believe it or not, a contemporary issue, and something I'm not going to wade into. But I'll, I'll leave us off with one quote here, from Lucien Campau, I believe I'm saying your name right, who writes for the Dictionary of Canadian Biography. He writes of Membertou, The pompous titles conferred upon Membertou by the French should not be taken literally. He commanded a small following of Megamac, who hunted and fished in the basin of the river and the harbor of Port Royal, and on the shores of St. Mary's Bay in Nova Scotia. It would be unwise to give this band a precise figure, that of a hundred souls seems to be a generous estimate. So there you go. Two very different portraits of the same exact person. That's how you know this is an interesting guy. And so the settlement at Port Royal is already off to a better start. Whereas at San Croix, you had natives just avoiding them pretty much altogether. Here we have very friendly natives, already familiar with Europeans, already sailing ships, go figure. Champlain again was sent out, like I mentioned before, to continue mapping the coastline of what would be the Maritimes in New England. Uh, in 1605, this very year that we're speaking about, he actually cites uh, Plymouth Harbor, the future Plymouth Harbor, some 15 years after this point in time. And he names it St. Louis, well, San Louis. Again, it appears that the French have been there, done that, before the English ever make an appearance. Of course, all of this is a, a mere footnote in our history textbooks. Come wintertime, though, 
it appears the entire leadership of Port Royal left before scurvy could set in. We see Demont leaves. We see that Grave Dupont leaves. We see uh, Baron Pontrincourt leaves and are spared the first winter at Port Royal, where 12 or so die. So better than Saint Croix, but uh, by today's standards, still horrifying, just horrific. Perhaps unknown to Champlain, uh, all the way in Port Royal, Dumont was sick of trying to settle Acadia, and he was finding it hard to enforce his monopoly all the way in the St. Lawrence. And so he was looking to unload Acadia entirely. And this would be a constant theme with Acadia, no matter who owns it. Nobody really wants it, and nobody can ever figure out what to do with it or the people in it. So one of the first things Demont does, as soon as he gets to France, is that he appoints uh, Baron Pontrincourt, the new governor of Acadia. Shortly thereafter, he sells Pontrincourt the uh, grant to Port Royal itself. And in February, uh, the King of France confirms that sale. Now, the sources vary, and I'm sure somebody knows the answer out there for certain, but there's some confusion on whether Demont completely sold all of his interests in Acadia, or whether he created for Pontrincourt a uh, land grant and the title of governor that would be subservient ultimately to Demont, and he would just, you know, would ignore his uh, superior role. So we don't know whether he completely divested himself of his interest in that area of New France or not. So that's just a little technical bug stuck in my head that I can't resolve. But either way you look at it, Demont was out. He, he doesn't really show up in the story anymore as far as Acadia is concerned. He's washed his hands of the place. So let's get to know Baron Pontrincourt a little bit better. He's one of those noble younger sons. So he's born into nobility, but he wasn't set to inherit very much, having older brothers. These are the men who would uh, not receive huge estates of land, but a sum of money at some point in time, and they would have to make it on their own. And just like Pontrincourt, many of them were barons, because barons are uh, on the lower half of the nobility scale, and they have to make a name for themselves. So often when you hear about noblemen, especially after this point in time, who did great feats of uh, strength and who fought in amazing battles and did courageous things, a lot of them were barons. Pontrincourt would distinguish himself in front of Henri IV, King of France, by being an ally of his during all these various wars going on within France, and so would enhance his meager inheritance with titles he earned outright. And so Poutrincourt is our new fearless leader at Port Royal. But Port Royal still has business with de Mons, and the two operations, separate or not, will be depending on one another to keep afloat. So Poutrincourt is headed back to Port Royal in 1606. He brings along with him many of his relatives, including his son, who history records as Bayancor. They, they shared many of the same names and titles, so to differentiate the two, we have Paltrincor and his son, Bayancor. And Paltrincor is bringing his lawyer. <laughs> this was a guy named Marc Lescarbot. And I try to say Marc with a French pronunciation. Didn't work out well. The guy's name is Marc. Marc Lescarbot. He was about the same age as Champlain and was everything Champlain wasn't. He was very well educated. He was a French lawyer. He had already published histor histories, he had published poems and songs, and this guy actually achieved national uh, fame when he helped orchestrate the great peace between France and Spain in 1598. Part of the reason, a big part of the reason, all of these new expeditions to the New World were even possible it was due to this one guy, where everything seemed to be falling apart. He got up there and between the French delegation and the 
Spanish delegation gave a grand speech and was able to restore the peace. This brought him fame and the king's attention, and he became a Parisian socialite. Lescarbeau was everything Champlain was not. Champlain learned on the go. He learned by working. He learned by doing. He fought in wars. He sailed the seas. Everything was hard fought, hard won for him. Lescarbeau was a man of letters. And despite being about the same age, the two men seemed to have not liked each other. They kept things cordial. But Lescarbeau would very famously write an account of his time in Acadia and a history of New France. And it's believed that he perhaps understated Champlain's role. And that might have encouraged Champlain to later publish more of his own accounts of New France. But anyway, Poutrincourt invited his lawyer to come with him and tour Acadia. He was uh, brought in as a guest. But being of high social rank, he was one of the nominal leaders of Acadia, of Port Royal specifically, and would have been seen in a similar standing to Champlain himself. Now, Poutrincourt had a new vision for Port Royal and Acadia in general. He didn't see the fur trade in the St. Lawrence as being really attached to what he had in mind to do down here. Of course, he would trade with the local Mi'kmaq and anybody else who might be around and willing to trade. But he ultimately saw an agricultural colony, a stable population, one that would be self-sufficient and be a rock for the uh, French interests in North America. And he, of course, would be the lord of this linchpin, ruling over it as someone would in a medieval estate. Because of that, when they left in May of 1606... On the ships, they packed in a bunch of pigs and pigeons and cattle and sheep. Poutrincourt brought, again, over a bunch of his relatives, his lawyer, and 50 colonists. Poutrincourt intended to start a population in, in earnest. There were, there were women included. And uh, when men and women get together, they tend to make more men and women. And when they arrive in July of 1606, uh, it's really to everyone's surprise, because Champlain and everybody else still at Port Royal assumed that de Mons' operation would still be in place, only to find out that Poutrincourt had inserted himself and the entire direction of the colony was about to uh, change on a dime. And in fact, in the spring of 1606, with all their leadership gone, Champlain and Pontgrave decided to sail to Conzo, which was a site further north along the coast, a seasonal fishing uh, summer camp, basically, to find transportation for themselves and the rest of the colony to go all the way back to France because they figured something had happened, there are no ships coming to resupply, we have to pack it in before we starve to death. And that's when they ran into Poutrincourt, his new colonists, and all of their supplies. And when Poutrincourt made it back to Port Royal, he started laying out his new plan. One of the first things that he did is he took the young nobles he brought with him and distributed them among various Native American tribes and clans. He wanted to have interpreters, so the young men were sent out. Much as how earlier uh, French explorers would just simply kidnap natives to become interpreters, uh, Poutrincourt decided to give away his young men to native groups and members of nobility, nonetheless. This was a real sign of the respect the French showed towards these native groups. Lescarbeau uh, remarks in his own account specifically on this, how the French treated natives differently and the natives treated the French differently in return. He says, and obviously in English translation, As for the natives of the people of this country, our French give a very different account of them than from Spaniards since being naturally more humane, gentle, and courteous. Indeed, it would be Lescarbeau, who, being a, sh a shrewd and talented lawyer, would fall for all of Member Two's uh, stories. He just believed everything, hook, line, and sinker, didn't question everything, and, and provides the most glowing accounts of the man. Lescarbeau even notated, in musical form, the songs 
that Membertow was singing. In the small colony of Port Royal, it appears that the, the Frenchmen of rank, of distinction, respected uh, the Native Americans or the First Nations people more than they did their lower-ranking Frenchmen. As the year 1606 grew cold, in November, Samuel D. Champlain uh, recommended forming a organization that would bring a little joy to everyone's lives. He called it the Order of Good Cheer. The 15 or so highest-ranking members of Port Royal were members of the Order of Good Cheer, and they would put on celebrations and plays and musicals and uh, all sorts of things to keep the spirit alive while the nights got longer and the temperature got lower. Now, it appears the low-ranking members of Port Royal, the Frenchmen without title, without even the right to call themselves sirs, would not be able to participate in many of these activities. And some of them they certainly did, but there was a distinction between upper class and lower class. And even at the celebrations where the lower classes were invited, Poutrincourt, Champlain, Lescarbot, they would not eat with those other people. Uh, it was seen as demeaning to them. But, just to contrast, uh, various Native American and First Nations peoples were invited to these celebrations. Uh, of course, they would recognize them as feasts, which the Natives held all the time, and had a very similar role in French culture. The Native Americans were allowed to eat with any of the Frenchmen. They were given far more respect than the less well-off Frenchmen who worked and toiled alongside the upper classes day after day at Port Royal. This brings us to an important point about French society at the time. It had ranks, it had structure, it had hierarchy, and there were rules and customs that kept everyone separated. Again, this is before the French Revolution. This would feed into some of the reasons why there was a French Revolution. Different times. And Champagne, Champlain, Les Garbeau, Pontrincourt, none of them are modern men, and we shouldn't hold them up to that standard. What we can say about them, though, is over the winter, while they were waiting for resupply, rations were always equally distributed. So even those lower-class Frenchmen who you couldn't even stand to eat in front of, they were given the same amount of food as everybody else. There's some sign of, of humanity, some, some sign of what we would consider uh, modern fairness. David Hackett Fisher uh, writes of this distinction concerning Champlain. Champlain had several lackeys. He scarcely ever referred to them by name, a common attitude among gentlemen humanists in the early modern era. But unknown to the colonists at Port Royal, in the St. Lawrence, Demont's operations are falling apart rapidly. They're battling with traders out of Amsterdam, the same traders who will probably later be among the first explorers of the Hudson River far to the south, and in some way founders of New Netherland, the subject of our first season. These losses uh, by Demont causes his monopoly to fall apart. Basically, the traders out of Saint-Malo and other places uh, no longer felt the need to purchase licenses from Demont anymore, and he had almost no way of enforcing it. But all of this remains out of the sight of our colonists at Port Royal. Then, in late August 1606, Poutrincourt decides to explore the coastline, along with Champlain and Grave du Point's son. Showing respect to his rank, Lescarbeau was actually put in charge, while the three of them would be away. It is at this point that Champlain maps probably the furthest south he gets, which again is right around Cape Cod to the, uh, the southern shores of what now would be the state of Massachusetts. Again, years before the Plymouth sailors, uh, settlers would ever get there, and even more years before the Massachusetts Bay Company would ever be founded. Champlain records that at this point in time, the shores of southern New England were full of Native Americans. Of course, he didn't call it southern New England, right? He called it part of New France. He called it Acadia. 
Um, and it's important to note here, this is before the pandemic started to rage and just decimate the populations of the Algonquian people who lived in what we now call New England. And so there was a very different world from what the pilgrims find 12, 13, 14 or so years later. There are Native Americans everywhere. The populations are full and rich, and they have well-organized nations and clans and systems of operating uh, with one another. This will be a corner of the Algonquian world that the English will never actually get to see, as the plagues take their toll and completely rewrite their history. At some point on this particular expedition, they were attacked by a very large group of natives who were looking to swarm their boats. And Grave Dupont's son actually lost part of his hand trying to defend himself with a musket, which malfunctioned. Now, if you remember back to our first and second episode of this particular season, there are some groups in, in uh, what was now called New England that were picked over by slave traders for about a century up until this point, particularly by the Portuguese. And so while people like Memberto are very willing to deal with the French, there are other groups that are extremely uh, put off any sight of Europeans and their boats. And so we can use Champlain's experience at this point in time to kind of explain why uh, New France never capitalized on this Acadian possession that would eventually become known as New England. Because when the French were hobnobbing around the area, it was full of natives. Friendly and not friendly, it was full. Their people had peopled the land. Whereas again, 10, 12, 13 years later, the plagues had taken their toll and much of the land was opened up for the English despite what the remaining natives would have to say about it. Their numbers weakened, and their powers greatly diminished. But back to Port Royal. Over the winter of 1606 into 1607, there seems to have been less deaths than we've seen in previous years. In fact, Champlain says that the order of good cheer did better for a man than any medicine. In the spring, the colonists planted crops. They were settling in. Port Royal was about to start growing. Things were looking good. And Lescarbeau, he was so jealous of Champlain for getting to explore and interact with these people who, who seemed so exotic to a French lawyer. And so in spring of 1607, right after planting the crops, Lescarbeau was allowed to go on one of these expeditions mapping the coastline. And he interacted with natives. No battles. And from this 1607 expedition, we have some of the very first records of the rudimentary pieces of several Algonquian languages that he recorded. Sometimes just simple numbers. How, how, how does this particular group at this particular latitude uh, number 1 through 10? And that's when the bad news came. A ship from Saint-Malo made its way to Port Royal, delivering the message on behalf of Demons that the monopoly has been canceled by the king. Demons' oper operations have completely fallen apart. He was uh, bogged down by litigation in Amsterdam, trying to receive some sort of compensation uh, for all the ships that were destroyed battling with Amsterdam traders. And Port Royal was essentially canceled. It turns out many of those from Saint-Malo who participated in the monopoly were operating their own illegal workarounds and pocketing all the profit for themselves. Demont's operation having lost all legitimacy uh, on the ground in the St. Lawrence and in the eyes of the King of France. It was all over. Port Royal was to be abandoned. But the colonists, many of them, insisted on staying behind to tend to the crops. And so for a couple more months, they would remain in operation. Also, they were drying cod and stuffing their ships with it. Because, dag nabbit, they were going to make some profit on their efforts here at Port Royal. And so this was an uneasy time 
for the colony as everyone was anticipating uh, leaving before the end of the year. In July of 1607, Membertoe, the colonist's best friend, goes on the war path. And so he leaves our story for a little bit. He's out of the sight of the Port Royal colonists. They're a little concerned about him. He leads 500 warriors to avenge the death of a kinsman. And unknown to Champlain and the others at Port Royal, in August of this very same year, the English would plant a colony a little further south in the current state of Maine. This Popham colony would be the very first attempt by the Virginia Company of Plymouth. And so just as New France is shrinking away from this area of the coast, New England is making its first appearance. The colonists of Port Royal started leaving in July. So maybe the two colonies did not overlap with one another. But a few Frenchmen stayed behind to watch over the crops. And they were also there to re receive Membertoe back into their community. And Membertoe pledged to take in the few remaining Frenchmen and to protect Port Royal and keep up the gardens there. And he did. For several years afterwards, this little chunk of New France would be under the auspices of the great Mi'kmaq chief, Membertoe. Champlain, of course, would have little else to do with Acadia. His future would lay in the St. Lawrence, where he'd been to once before. Ultimately, he dreamed of creating a colony at a strategic choke point in the St. Lawrence, where he could finally rid the entire area of illegal traders, bring the entire thing under one official monopoly approved by the king, and create stable relations with all the natives in the area, funneling all the furs through him. All of this, of course, would have to be wrangled over first back in France. The ships arrived in the fall of 1607, delivering most of the Port Royal uh, colonists back home. Champlain went to Demons and reignited the effort to gain the monopoly back over the St. Lawrence trade. Lescarbeau was to increase his fame by publishing his account and history of New France. And Paltrincourt went to the king. And in addition to all the cod they were able to sell from their Port Royal settlement, he showed them the crops they had grown. He had showed them, well, dead Canadian geese. He even brought some of Membertoe's people back to meet the king, to show how friendly they were, as well as their wares and pelts. Champlain was leaving, but Paltrincourt was digging his heels in. He would return to Acadia. And so our season takes a fork, as we see New France develop into two separate zones. Keep listening to the Other States of America History podcast. I'm Eric Giannis, and our story will continue. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.